Uh, so with me today is Lauren Redhead. Lauren is a composer of experimental music, a performer of music for organ and electronics, and a musicologist who focuses on aesthetics as socio-semiotics of uh, music. <laughs> socio-semiotics of music. Okay. Uh, she was born in Manchester and received her PhD in composition uh, at the University of Leeds, working with Derek Scott, Martin Eden, and Mick Spencer through, through the years. Um, you did your undergraduate there as well. I did, yeah. All right. Um, she is now senior lecturer at Canterbury Christ Church University in Canterbury at the School of Music there. Uh, her music has been performed at numerous leading festivals, including Huddersfield, Gaudiamus, London Ear Festival, um, one that I can't pronounce because it's in Italian, uh, Composers Marathon 5 in Vienna, Full of Noises, and many others. And she herself has performed at numerous events as an organist um, around the globe. So today, Lauren will just be talking to you mostly as a composer. Yeah. And then later this week, we'll talk to you and uh, your partner in crime, Alistair Zaldua, Zaldua um, about your uh, duo for organ and uh, electronics. Uh, so thanks for being on with me, and thanks for giving up your Sunday afternoon uh, for us, <laughs> as it's very warm in England um, at the moment, uh, it's a big ask to have you sit in a quiet room. <laughs> um, so I start each podcast with the same question, uh, and so far it's proven to be a little bit fun, the answers, um, but could you tell me what your first sonic memory is? Wow, that's actually a really difficult question. Um, I wish I had thought about this before. Well, I don't tell anyone I'm gonna what I'm gonna ask. <laughs> that, so it kind of gets the podcast going off on a nice foot. I oh gosh, I I mean I think um, I can remember lots of things that that must have had sound, but I don't remember listening in those situations. Um, I can't tell you what music it was, but I remember that I used to listen um, with, is that too loud? Sorry. Okay. Um, I used to listen to LPs with my dad when I was really little. And I remember that because the speakers were in one room and the record player was in another room. So you had to go in and out to change, to change the record. So that's something that I remember doing with him, perhaps when my mum wasn't there for whatever reason. If she wasn't there, we would listen to records. So I, and I can't remember what music it was, but I do remember that they had one of uh, Wet, Wet, Wet. <laughs> lots of David Bowie, lots of David Bowie, but I think they were mum's records. So that, that's probably it, but I, I can't remember exactly what it would have been. And why exactly were the speakers in another room? <laughs> well, there were two lots of speakers. So... The uh, record player was in the dining room and there were some smaller speakers in there. And then they had made um, it possible to listen in, in the next room. I see. So. Okay. Early spatialization for you. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very nice. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit about your background in music, how you got into music, what your pathway was, as, you, as it were, uh, to experimental composer? Sure. Um, well, I... I learned the organ. So um, most organists learned the piano 
and then they learn the organ. Um, and I learned the organ because my parents don't have a music background and my dad really wanted uh, his children to, to learn something, learn an instrument. And so they... He, he was looking for a piano teacher, but they found an organ teacher and they kind of didn't see that there would be much difference between that. So they just said, you know, try this and, and see if you like it. And I did. And um, my teacher was also a woman, which is probably equally unusual. And, and she was brilliant, actually. Her name was Tracy Rose. And uh, she emigrated to Spain when I was a teenager. Um, but I really enjoyed learning with her. So that was kind of the beginning of of music for me. And, um, and was this at a church in your hometown or that you, yeah. that you studied with her? Yeah. yeah, and also you can study with like an electronic console as well. So, so that's how you, um, you can learn. And she, she lived on a narrow boat, actually. So she didn't have an organ her, on her narrow boat. Um, and so, yeah, so, so I, I was studying that and I, I did do some playing at the church uh, that was kind of where we lived. Um, and then I, when I was doing my A-levels, I became interested in composing and I didn't really have an idea of what that was or what it would mean. I was just sort of trying stuff out. Um, but I also did a performance diploma just before I went to university, um, which I passed, but I just found so horrific that I thought that I would, I just never wanted anyone to see me uh, play an instrument ever again. So when I went, I, I chose a degree, which was in Leeds, where you could do composition and not do any performance. And it was one of the only degrees in the country where you could you could opt out of performing. Um, so and, and so that's where I met Mick Spencer, who um, lent me really a lot of CDs and books in the first year of my degree. And um, it's kind of hard to imagine a world without YouTube and Spotify and everything. But that was really um my way into 20th century music and, and, and contemporary music and so hearing that music really was what sort of told me this is what I want to be involved in and you know before that point before university I've been like illegally downloading Stockhausen you know over dial-up and that kind of thing so <laughs> I didn't know you could do that over dial-up <laughs> <laughs> it was it took a long time <laughs> um who were some of the, um, when you were at the, at the college, who were some of your big names that you, you Schockhausen was a big influence, would you say? Or who who do you think was um, an influence on you at that time? Well, I remember of, of the many, many CDs that Mick had, had lent to me, one of the composers that really stood out was Matish Ballinger. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and he was just saying to me, you know, which... which pieces did you like of, of these pieces and I said yeah that you know I really like that one and and um and so then I I looked at um Matisse's music a lot during my degree and, and I even wrote my dissertation about his music so that was a big influence to me and then I mean really kind of contemporary German composers I guess and then also um are we calling it like the third Viennese school now? So start, started listening to music like Klaus Lang and and, um, and also Wandelweiser. And that was, you know, really kind of interesting and different to me than what was definitely than what was going on in the UK, which is often quite conservative compared with mainland Europe. 
Um, so, so they were they were things that really interested me because they were just ideas that seemed a bit different from, you know, yeah, what, what what you could find in what you're sort exposed of to. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Similar case in the states for me uh, when I was in college. Lockerman was a huge influence on me. Still mm -hmm. has, but no one had ever heard of him in the United States. And oh, really? this was actually before the internet, so you had to <laughs> order things from Germany. It took about ten weeks to arrive. Uh, very interesting change in technology uh, that has come about in our lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So, um, now, you've sent me a lot of scores, which is great. A lot of very interesting scores, uh, very interesting pieces um, that uh, raised for me a lot of, I think, I hope, for you, good questions. Um, you're quite a prolific composer, I would say. Would would you agree with that? I don't know. I don't feel like I am, but but maybe. Um, I mean, the, the music that I sent you, those projects began in 2013, so that's probably about, you know, five years worth of, of music, and then I've written some smaller pieces at the same time. So maybe. I mean, I, I'm writing a, a, a number of pieces a year, but not... Not one of them. Now, all the pieces that you sent me uh, are more or less um, graphic in nature, yeah. graphic uh, scores. And um, I want to start with the big picture first and then come down into the um, details of each piece that you sent me. Um, where do, as you said, these projects are started in 2013, um, are all of your scores graphic, or do these a uh, sort of um, side avenue, if you will? Do do you just prefer graphic notation over more traditional? Um, well, I still, I mean, my background is chamber music, so and unnotated music and um, or traditionally notated music. So I and I'm still writing some pieces with you know staves and, and, and notes um this is something that's come about particularly after i finished my phd um and particularly because well not because but at the same time i became involved in performing um graphic notated music um so um i worked with a group called uh, vocal constructivists and and we did um performances of treatise by by cardio and then and other pieces and then i started to work on some of those pieces with the organ um so and then i also just became very interested in how notation was made and the process of of making things um and um so i think i'm interested in the visual aspect of it i'm interested in the tradition of that music and and i'm also interested in the idea of of making itself and how you know the piece can reveal that kind of aspect of making and then at the same time i started to uh to improvise myself a lot and to work with with improvisers and um and so i became interested in this kind of medium where all those things could could be together i guess uh -huh. could you uh, maybe unpack this idea of making uh, a little bit more when you say you became interested in the process of making the score um, is it kind of a historical look at the 
history of notation or is it a personal idea of the craft that you're developing? I, th I think it is, uh, yeah, I think it's more personal. I have always, or pretty much always, um, written all my music by hand. And um, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I learned that James Dillon even uh, made the staves mm -hmm. by hand. So um, that just really appealed to me and I wanted to do that. And so I spent quite a lot of time just drawing staves. I spent a lot of time drawing staves as a result of that. And um, that's something that I've mostly given up on now, actually. I'm, I'm allowing staves to be... Um, <laughs> Mass-produced. Produced, yeah. Um, but so I, I felt like there was something very different about doing that than just inputting it into computer and I, you know obviously there are lots of ways that people can work creatively with software but I sort of rankled at this thing that when you turn it on it says what key is the piece in and you know they kind of wanted to distance myself from that but also then I think just writing notes that way didn't necessarily kind of answer that question for me and so I'm I'm interested in like the practice of writing and the practice of of making and what that has to do with notation and particularly with graphic notation I'm not just interested in what do these symbols look like and what might that mean but actually what does the practice of having made this thing then tell me about the ways that it might be performed so what kind of does it have as, a, as, a, as an integral aspect of it and so in some of the scores that I've sent you where I've kind of used these sort of historical decorative art practices um you know i'm interested in what does what does re-performing that what does actually making that tell you about it that just looking at it doesn't necessarily tell you about it and so so i think there's an experience of making that then kind of gives you an experience that you can take into performing as well and that's sort of what really interests me about it very nice very nice. Um, just on your little James uh, Dillon story, I watched a documentary on Stravinsky a long time ago, and uh, he had a very special pen that I've never seen anywhere. I've always looked for it, a pen with five heads on it, so he could just instantly draw a perfect stave. It was the most fascinating thing. I wish they would actually make this. <laughs> they make it. You can get it. Oh, do they? they you yeah. found it. Oh, cool. I found one. <laughs> I'll have to get the contact uh, information from you about that later. It is quite interesting, though, because um, one of the topics that I wanted to talk uh, about, and I think it'll come about quite often, is the psychology of notation. There are quite a few um, performers who um, prefer reading from handwritten scores. Mm. Uh, they don't like the sort of stereotype vision of Sibelius or Finale. Um, have, in your experience, have you created, if we could call them gestures, that you know didn't work the way that you had hoped would communicate to um, your performer, or vice versa? Have you found certain shapes, certain gestures that constantly work with different performers? That's a really interesting question. Um, I don't know. Um, I think that 
it is my experience that I feel like some things might be um, quite... Uh, I feel like a potential interpretation of some things might be quite obvious, and I, not everybody thinks that. But that's okay, actually, because I'm quite interested in... Um, there not being a sort of one-to-one -one relationship between marks on the page, you know, so kind of line goes up, sand goes up kind of relationship because that's a bit limiting, I think. Um, I think it's quite interesting. So, okay, related to this question, recently um, I wrote a piece for uh, Beast Feast and I worked with a different organist. Um, so normally I would play the organ and I worked with an organist called Mario Fukumoto who uh, was brilliant, but she wrote me an email and said, you know, this is really not the kind of thing that I've been doing or I've been used to doing at all. And so she was asking me these questions and I was kind of saying to her the strategies that I had or that I might use. And so then that kind of revealed to me that I've got this repertoire of ways of thinking about notation that not everybody who has, who hasn't worked in that way before. So I think... What I try to do often in the schools is put like lots and lots of different layers in. So maybe there's some notes there. So then if you don't know what to do, you can just play the notes and then that's fine. Um, but I suppose it's a bit like that story with Stockhausen where he's talking to the uh, performer who says, I just, I don't know what you mean by this. And he says, okay, then you can just play nothing. That's fine. And, you know, so I think that there has to be those multiple levels of stress there. And I think, yeah, what, what may be kind of not satisfying is when you feel like it's a very superficial relationship that somebody does. But I do tend to work with people who, you know, they, they've kind of moved past that. So, so it's not really a problem. So I'm, I'm actually really interested to hear somebody do something that I just didn't imagine, because I think that's, that's a kind of an ultimate outcome of that kind of meditation. So before we actually get into um, the pieces, this kind of leads uh, to another big question is you obviously rely heavily on the performers, perhaps mm -hmm. more so than, a, shall we say, a standard composition uh, would. How does that process work for you? Do you have to get to know the performer personally or do you just take a gamble and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work kind of thing? Mm. With these pieces, most of the time they're people that I know uh, or they're people that I have had had a chance to kind of um, to work out what they're going to be like. So um, in a way, you know, I've got that kind of sound world of those people. Um, so for the um, EOA piece, we put a group together uh, with Alistair Taldua and Adam Linson, uh, Tina Crackles, who plays saxophone, um, Les Hutchins, who plays the tuba, so um, in that, I mean, I was also quite interested in low notes, like the low note nature of that group. Um, but also they're all people that I know as really good improvisers and, and you know, creative people who've got the same way of, of thinking about music, perhaps. Um, and there's Sarah Brandt, who plays a trombone. I've worked with quite a lot. Um, so that often there are people maybe coming from more of a kind of free improv background than a, a notated 
not that they they don't play notated music but that's not their main thing so yeah so that that's interesting to me as well so I think I'm often you know interested in working with people that I know will be coming from a similar place and so this situation with Mari when she was playing the piece at Beast Feast was actually um quite unusual uh but also um it did work out but it just it worked out in a different way because um because it was different for her and it, it was different for me as well to kind of have that more traditional where you hand over the score and then play like traditional it, you know? hierarchy i guess exactly yeah. yeah yeah now coming to this hierarchy and i'm playing devil's advocate here uh this isn't my actual feelings <laughs> uh but issues uh since oh john cage john cage's uh, some of his graphic scores uh and so forth is this idea of um uh, maybe we could say ownership or the traditional hierarchy um being gone i remember um a professor of mine, Steve Sibrood, said he asked John Cage once, why does he even sign his compositions if mm. it's actually the performers who are creating uh, music? Was this an issue for you in the past? Is it an issue for you in the, in the uh, present? Or was it an issue or a barrier to get over? Um, because traditionally, of course, we have this hierarchy where the composer is locked in his or her room. <laughs> gets a few scraps of food every so often and hands over a score and that's the end of it. Um, that's the end of the relationship in a way, right? Um, could you talk us through that, perhaps? Yes. I mean, that's a very difficult question, isn't it? Because, um, you know, the story with, with Cage is, is exactly right because um, you can't say that that hierarchy has been uh, erased when somebody is, is still named as the author of the piece. Um, and I, what I have thought about this is that there are different sets of tasks that create that performance. And some of, in some ways, you know, that hierarchy cannot be undone because if I create all these scores and that's the impetus for the performance and I, you know, title it and all that kind of thing, then there is a kind of degree of control that's that's not the same as saying this is a free improv gig and we're just five people and we're going to see what happens. So um, there's um, the um, Australian pianist Zubin Kanga has he wrote about this when he was uh, working on a piece called Not Music Yet by David Young, and he talked about developing uh, what he calls a work specific performance practice, and I think that that is a really um, concise way of saying you know how perhaps these sets of ways of playing and being and performing um that might be you know specific to individual performers who aren't the composer um how they come together in a piece and i think that i think that work is important and i think that that work um needs to be recognized within contemporary music but i think that by calling improvisation like co-composition it's it erases some of what's going on there because it is a performative work and it's not uh it's not just a kind of um free for all. You know, free performance yeah exactly so so the solution here is that um composers need to be better at, at 
crediting and, and recognizing what performers do in, in creating their work. And I think when I've tried to talk about the work that I've made and the performances, um, I, I try to talk about how important those individual people are, not just because they're really good at what they do and that's why I want to have them be involved, but because they have created a specific part of it. And um, well, it's interesting, yeah. this yeah. um, uh, piece-specific practice, almost mm -hmm. like a site-specific piece. Yeah. Um, that's a really nice idea that each, each, but also, and psychologically, I imagine this happens anyway. If you play the same Mozart sonata twice, it's going to be a psychologically different thing. But um, <clears throat> with these graphic scores, um, uh, the second performance, third performance will be a completely, absolutely different um, experience if, do you think? Or, yeah. yeah, well, it's true and it's not true. Um, and I think, so if I kind of think about the organ and the, you know, the repertoire of things that the organ can do, which is really a lot of things, um, what I don't want to do for, for any piece of music is just, you know, everything kind of kitchen sink approach. So I think there is a process of working out which which of this huge repertoire of things can belong to this piece. And so the performance might be different in many of its aspects, but it also might have kind of unifying uh, aspects to that as well, which might make more sense to me when I think about performing it, then maybe someone who's listening to it and hears those things is very different. Um, but also the work that Alistair's done in performances of many of these pieces is a really good example of this because he's made um, bespoke um, electronic interfaces, kind of built electronic instruments that he can use, and he's built different ones for different pieces. So he's got a kind of repertoire of, of different gestures that he can use, in many of them, he's made specific sets of samples that he just uses for that piece and, and no other pieces. So he's kind of got his his repertoire of stuff for each piece and, and kind of parceled it off. And so then as we're performing, you know, more times, obviously he's kind of learning the more things that he can do with that instrument that he's made. Um, but it's it's got its own identity because of the way that he's conceptualized it and built these things, which um, which I really like because it makes it sort of unique and, and specific. This is sort of interesting. You kind of touched on a, a, a idea that I've had for quite a while that uh, a piece is sort of like a, a filter. Yeah, you, you could do everything in the universe, and a piece is just a small selection of those things. Um, but the composer is also a filter. Mm -hmm. uh, so the uh, first filter you traditionally see in a score is the composer's name, and if you're familiar with that composer's work, you perhaps get into a mindset slightly that Alistair or uh, other of your collaborators would would know you and what you want. So it's quite interesting. Um, so if we could move to um, specific uh, pieces. Um, that you sent me. Uh, the first I'd like to talk about is this uh, fascinating piece, um, Entopic Landscapes, or, excuse me, Entopic Landscape, mm -hmm. 
it's the only title that I can actually pronounce all the other times. <laughs> I have no idea. You'll have to help me out with that. Okay. Uh, but perhaps uh, you could just start real quick um, by how you're using this word entopic. Mm -hmm. So um, entopic means um, it's to do with the structure of your eye. And um, so um, entoptic phenomena are things that you can see when you don't have any light source. So um, you, if you kind of cover your eyes and, and block out all the light and, you know, you don't have to press, but you can, you can do that, then you'll see like kind of flashing lights and patterns and things like that. And what you're actually seeing there is the structure of your optic nerve. Um, and you see that because you don't have any other stimulus. So your brain is basically trying to make sense of, of what's going on there. And um, I was interested in... Um, parietal art and ice age art and particularly um the circumstances by which those artworks came about and lots of them are very inaccessible for example and so the, a lot of the theory about why they may have been made in the way that they've been made uh is to do with perhaps um kind of ritualized potentially shamanistic uh, practices which might involve going into very dark spaces um, and the kind of experience that you would have in those spaces, which would be, you know, very different from your normal experience. Um, and so if you're in those spaces, you've got no light source, then um, you would have this experience and there's some thinking that, you know, the sort of patterns and things that you see uh, are replicated in, in many of these these works and so what really interested me in that is that that is an experience that you can have that someone 40,000 years ago also could have um, and I think there are very few things that you could be as certain about as that so that was really interesting to me and then I, I was just interested in in those ideas about how this work was getting made and, and how it really was described in what I was reading as being something that was actually a very personal experience rather than a kind of communal experience or a, a display in the way that, you know, you would go and see some art in the gallery today. And, um, and that was kind of just a starting point of, of thinking about what to do and, uh, and how to, to um, approach the piece. And in fact, that piece, it first, the first performance was um, with um, four tubers, trombone and organ um and that was, a, that was a conversation about how could you have an acoustic 5.1 uh -huh. nice. uh, so the, the the trombones were uh, sorry the tubers were four the trombone was the center and the organ was the point one um and i i made a score that did have those graphic symbols in it and it had some text in it but it also had like a timeline um and it was a bit more kind of linear what I found was when you've written a piece for four tubers, trombone and organ, you can't really perform that. Many times. <laughs> and so I to think, right, how can I kind of start to recreate this in ways that it becomes, you know, possible for other people to, to play it and, and that it has more life after that. And so then it went through many, many different versions um, and came out with this graphic score at the end, which was the sort of, you know, accessible end point of it. But um that's fascinating. So there are versions and um, reshapings 
in this piece. Is that a common trait in your works that we'll be talking about today? Uh, reshaping it works? Yeah. Yeah, it is now. And it, because of this project, actually, that because I did it there, then I thought that kind of gave me a, a starting point for this is how you can kind of explore something in a, in a much more open-ended way than, you know, again, just writing the score in the room and handing it over and, and that's the end of your involvement. And... That's, that's a really nice uh, insight uh, there. This idea of cave art, um, this Icelandic art, is a nice coincidence. I was just in France um, in May and we visited one of these caves and it absolutely is like you are back in time. You are experiencing what our ancestors experienced 40, 50,000 years ago. It was a very magical experience. Um, and what I've noticed in a lot of your pieces is there is this um, reaching back uh, mm. to the past, often for you the very distant past. We have uh, Neolithic <laughs> uh, societies. Uh, in later pieces, we'll be talking about uh, sort of touching on Renaissance and medieval mm. um, uh, music and um, history and so forth. So um, this reaching back, uh, why does that fascinate you so um, so much in your recent works? I think I'm interested in things that are, you know, at least in some way obsolete. So, um, you know, with the cave art, there are things that can be supposed about it and, and it can be studied, but there's also lots of things that will never be known about it. And um, in the, the Minoan piece, um, you know, I was interested in Linear B and the way that it had been deciphered and the way that it had been mistranslated many times and how, you know, how that kind of had been approached. And um, so, so I'm interested in the idea that there's something about these practices of, of writing or of art that's that is, is always going to be unknown. And so, again, kind of similar to the idea of, you know, when you've made something that might reveal something about it more than if you've just kind of looked at it. Um, I'm interested in, well, what does it mean to kind of redo these things or rewrite these things or, or kind of use these same practices? Um, not to kind of create something that's the same, but just to think about what can this mean to me today? And um, one of the things that is sort of, I guess, conceptually interesting to me about that is that these are things that don't have a kind of, um, if I say like they don't have a sort of capitalist meaning in that they don't have, you know, there's, there's nothing to be made from them because it's not saleable, it's not part of contemporary society. And actually in doing many of these things, what I found was... Um, you know, it takes a long time to do this and it's not, so, so it's in a way it can never kind of generate surplus value. It can only be, you know, its own thing. And so, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not saying this music is about the Ice Age or this music is about, you know, the Bronze Age, but more, you know, there are things there that, that exist but are not fully understood that are in some way obsolete that are not kind of at work and that maybe by by reusing those uh, practices, there's there's more to be had from them, which could be of relevance to me as a performer or a composer. Um, 
I absolutely love this idea of obsolete. Uh, it's an idea that uh, I think about quite often, that um, perhaps composition is almost an obsolete uh, art form, but that's what makes it important, is because it can't be used, um, well, experimental composition, it, can't, yeah. it doesn't have this capitalist surplus. Or uh, There was a poet, um, and I heard the quote from this poet, and I wish I could remember the poet, uh, poet's name, a Brazilian poet, if anyone <laughs> maybe knows who the quote is actually from, but... Um, the quote was, uh, poetry is so useless today that it's dangerous. And um, I just love that quote. And I think composition, uh, experimental composition, comes close to that uh, sentiment as well. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, but this, this, this idea of obsolete is uh, a wonderful idea that I think um, touches on a lot of people. And it's similar, uh, I think, uh, in a lot of ways. For instance, I'm really interested and a lot of composers uh, are really interested in instable mm. um, things that's uh, broken, yeah. <laughs> broken, obsolete uh, things. Now, um, as your uh, view often goes way back in time, I also um, was struck, where does the, if you will, the sacred enter in your thinking, this ritual or this um, spiritual feeling that I often get from your music. It's not a Christian or any any sort of organized religious feeling that I get, but it is very much on a sacred, a veil, if you will, um, that there's something behind. <laughs> I, I hate to, to generalize, but um, your music uh, uh, often has a very sedate, uh, long uh, feel to it, so it's a long breath, but there's always this for me anyway, this sort of eerie edginess that something's actually behind that curtain and mm. <laughs> it might be good, it might be bad. <laughs> <laughs> that's a re I mean, maybe that's a really interesting interpretation. It's not something that I've really thought about, um, but maybe my, you know, liturgical music background has infiltrated uh, things in that way. I mean, I think possibly that a lot of the... Um, visual references in the scores are to obviously surviving um, documents and, and artwork and um, particularly uh, in the ones that use Anglo-Saxon sources you know surviving documents are often religious documents and that has to do with the people who were wealthy enough and educated enough to make those things and also the you know, the institutions that were able to protect those things. So I think that a lot of, you know, a lot of that seems to reference that kind of religious uh, life or use just because that's the least likely to have been lost of, of uh, many things. Um, but I think the kind, there is a ritualised nature of performance and, uh, you know, particularly within classical music. Um, so that's something that's very difficult to get away from when that's been your your background. But I think it's also something that's quite, um, you know, attractive still, even if you don't want to kind of have a traditional concert hall experience. I think that kind of, um, you know, quietness, the sort of aesthetic practice of listening, um, the kind of ritual, cyclical practice of doing things, um, 
I think if you didn't like that, you probably wouldn't want to be a musician, potentially. So I don't know. This isn't a very good answer because it's um, it's something that I haven't really thought about very much. But um, no, I think I think for lots of artists, there are things that other people pick up on that you know just yeah, wasn't a conscious thing. But often, so for instance, when you and I play together or we've had concerts, they are always in churches, and so yeah. <laughs> you're instantly. Oh, I better be quiet here because it's a church. <laughs> this is true. Is when you play the organ, it's often in the church. An American colleague told me about um, pizza restaurants that often have an organ in the state. <laughs> so at some point, I would like to do a, a pizza tour. <laughs> well, you could also do uh, the uh, old cinemas in the states. I'm not even sure about the UK, but they would have um, the older cinemas still have the organs uh, installed. I think a couple of places in the UK have it. I know someone who restored a cinema organ in Barrow. So there's definitely one there. That would be a very interesting project. Um, actually, here in Berlin, I saw somewhere uh, they do the silent films still with the organ accompaniment. So oh, nice. I'll try and find out where that is for you. Um, okay, so uh, getting back to this um, piece and topic... Um, landscape. Um, now all of these pieces uh, that we're going to talk about, or most of these pieces are available on a, on a website that I'll have the link to. Uh, um, uh, what, what's the name of the website? The, uh, it's uh, Pani Rosas Discos is the label, yeah. Okay, we'll have a link uh, to that. So you have the score um, here and the audio recording. Now with this album, um, you have released four, uh, well, before I get to that, there's this one page, the second page of the score, which very much takes me back to this Aboriginal arts or this cave art with the shadow of hands with some more or less music notation <laughs> on top, which is very interesting. Now, what's quite interesting about this piece uh, for me was that there are four different versions, four different recordings. <clears throat> that you've uh, given us access to. And obviously something here is working correctly because they are very much in the same sound world. They're very different pieces, very different performances, but very much in the same sound world. Was that strictly from this process of reshaping the score or was it working closely with the musicians or? Um, yeah, well, I think um, both. So um, in the first version, that's the, the 5.1 acoustic a version and then in the second uh version of it is uh the performers um are um the same trombone player sarah brand and um two uh of the same uh tuba players which are um sam underwood and stuart estelle who were a doom metal tuba band called or so if you don't know their uh, music you definitely look it up and um then I also used some um, playback of sound that I had taken from the first performance and re-edited and, um, and manipulated. And then um, I, I did that again. I further did that and I created a, an organ version, which um, I had a kind of plan for that piece. But I, you know, I played it um, a number of times. And so I suppose I was quite free with what I did with that plan because it was... So each iteration is sort of nested into the next iteration. Yeah, absolutely. And then the, the shorter one, um, 
it's just it's completely in the studio but the the text was the text that I'd used in the first piece and I kind of amplified that and changed that so yeah so there's a kind of iterative process um where what had happened in previous performances could then be used to to kind of create newer performances or, or newer versions of it um but also working with the same the same musicians and one interesting thing about this album release is at least in one of the pieces perhaps in all of the pieces you do have pictures of and biographies of all the performers in, in a way uh, this ownership question that came up mm. before that you're documenting who who is there which is i don't think often very done, uh, done very often by uh, composers giving them uh, the credit um the score um is quite graphic uh this hand thing these lines and this is where I could see this first page of your score where someone might literally interpret these as glissandi or, mm. or something. Um, was there anything in this score that you maybe noticed that was being taken too literally or didn't function psychologically the way you had hoped so it might have been edited out or altered? Um, in fact, you know, I, I sort of amplified um, those kind of graphic things over in the very first version that I made that had the more kind of linear score. Um, I had a lot more sort of graphemes, which were like maybe a bit more gestural, a bit kind of more straightforward about what to do. And um and that was fine for that performance. But then at that point, I felt like, okay, we've probably got enough out of those things that they don't need to be, you know, too much, too much there. Um, the, the thing that you were talking about where it could be glissandi, um, that to make those lines, I sort of developed a kind of automatic writing practice because it's a reference to, um, it's called finger fluting, which is basically it's lines in the walls of caves that you can see, which is where people were kind of tracing their fingers along as they're walking along. And so um, potentially that's not just so you don't fall over, but it's actually a kind of connection with the sort of the, the space and the importance of the space. And most of those in the kind of original linear score, it, it was too long for tuba players to kind of play something that's a glissando for that amount of time. So they they did already have to find a different uh, approach to it. So I, th I think the glissando possibility is there, but I hope that the kind of people who want to play this kind of piece probably would get bored of that after. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, when I first Googled what Antoptic meant uh, this morning, I... Um, accidentally misspelled it as endopic, mm. which is actually a form of automatic writing. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. So Now you have another title. Uh, <laughs> I do. You can have endoptic and, and, and endopic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, okay, great. I'd like to move on to the second piece, uh, a, a really wonderful piece, in my opinion, uh, that you sense. Um, now, the 
the titles from here on get very uh, <laughs> very much into your court. This is the uh, Minoan piece. Um, okay. So, uh, well, we're pronouncing it Iyareya. Okay. Um, Can you say it one more time? <laughs> so, Iyareya. Okay. Uh, I'd just like to read from um, the website mm -hmm. uh, where this can be found. Uh, lots of very interesting descriptions here. Well, actually, you could probably just do it yourself. Tell us about the piece. Um, so it's, I was interested in um, Linear B, which is uh, a language that was um, discovered, excavated, uh, first in Knossos on Crete. And uh, Arthur Evans, who led the excavation there, was looking for writing and he thought this was a candidate for where he might find uh, what he thought would be the earliest form of writing. It isn't, but it, it's our very early form of writing. Um, and um, what was really interesting to me about this was that it took a very long time for it to be deciphered. And um, one of the reasons of, for that was uh, that it wasn't clear what, what the language would have been. Um, and so it turns out that Linear B is... Um, takes the, the symbols of an earlier language and an earlier writing practice and uses them to write Greek, but it's a very archaic form of Greek. And even then, it's also a kind of mangled form of that archaic form of Greek because uh, they had to make it work um, for this, this uh, alphabet. And, um, well, it's not an alphabet, it's a syllabary. Um, and so in the process of figuring this out, people were hoping for um, epic literature, poetry, all of these things. And in fact, uh, what it is, is, is mainly accounts. Um, so, so there's not, there's no kind of, you know, uh, real beauty to be had there, but the, the sort of hopes and the, the practice of trying to interpret this and decipher this and, and work out what it was, um, was really, really interesting to me. So the, the title, uh, is the transliteration of, um, the the word in linear b for priestess mm -hmm. which um itself is a kind of mangled form of, of an early form of greek so that pronunciation and that word is not a word that has existed in any language it's a kind of invented word that is derived from a transliteration so it, it's a new meaning if you like it's a it's a new thing that has come uh from this and so in the piece i took um that uh that text I took um, translations and mistranslations of that text um, I took some sources like um, you know maps and particularly the kind of paraphernalia in old maps that you know to do with um, sort of searching and, and, and uh, looking for something and I also created uh, some concrete poetry some notation that comes from uh, Minoan art and particularly these um, uh, squids which are on things uh, and uh, and then also I did create kind of some strategies that that definitely has a kind of Stockhausen reference in the way that I've I've put those together which were you know potential strategies for improvisation and performance um, and so that was the starting point uh, and then yeah I began to work with with a number of performers in in putting together a, a kind of large-scale performance of these materials, really, and, and what they might mean. 
Yeah, so the recording that's available, I believe, was about 50 minutes long. Yes. Uh, it's, it's quite an engaging listen. Um, and you describe it here as a digital opera, uh, multi-layered open and digital opera. Are you using opera, the classical or the uh, stage sense, or are you using the idea of work or series of yeah. works? I mean, I felt like uh, there's something definitely to do with the kind of text and I feel like the dramaticness of the music. Round about the time, the same time as I did this, I also worked with some students on um, the opera um, I Norton by Gino Robert. And um, so he uh, comes from the Bay Area. There's a tradition of a lot of musicians uh, in the States you know, working in the same kind of geographical location who are all using opera to mean this kind of large scale work that has sort of text input. It has a number of um, different kind of materials, um, but there's still um, a lot of impetus for the performers to select from that, to structure it, to, to produce it. And so that that was the kind of tradition, actually, that I was thinking about. When, when I used that word. Um, uh, when it was performed, was there a, a, any sort of staging or lighting, or was it a more traditional performance? Uh, the, this recording? So in, um, well, in the, the recording online, um, again, it's kind of a, an edit in the studio from a number of performances, mainly from um, a quite a long, uh, large-scale performance that was with um, Adam Linson, Alice Zardia, Tina Crackles, and um, Les Hutchins, and that was um, it. It wasn't really staged, but it was it was spatialized, and so um, the organ is already in the space. The musicians were at different places in the space. Uh, there was you know surround uh, speakers. So um, so in that in that respect there was a kind of staging of the sound more than of something visual um but there's also um material from another performance with uh Sarah Gale Brand which was more of a kind of concert situation um and then so there've been kind of varying performances there's not really any kind of visual aspect to it or there hasn't been maybe there could be um, but definitely the idea of kind of staging sound of having something that's kind of spatialized that's sort of site specific is really interesting to me now i hate to harp on uh, scores uh, so much uh, um, but i think your scores are fascinating <laughs> with this idea of visual that just uh, i was reminded myself of a question i want to ask um, do you at times or have you at times shared the score with the audience say during a performance obviously after the performance they can look at the music stand but uh, have you ever say projected the scores um... yeah I have, to, I have done in some uh, some occasions I've mainly done that where I've had other pieces that had something visual so for example um we performed a piece uh, by Martin Eden and um, Antis Carisario, uh, who it's called Complicity Simplex, and it's um, a video notation. So that's the projection. So um, then I, I showed some of the scores as well um, 
and that was in a gallery um and it, so i think that made sense and i have some of the scores have been um shown in in galleries um so i have mixed feelings about this uh but one of the the most recent times it was um an exhibition about drawing that was kind of um around or responding to also the the most recent Gerard drawing prize and so i thought well actually this it is a form of drawing it has something to do with drawing so i so i don't mind it being part of that whereas you know i don't think it is a kind of thing to just be looked at um i think it's a thing that is for performance but um that that didn't seem to be too dissonant to me um so so i have done that but also i'm not sure if that's I think there's a potential for that to become the focus then rather than the performance itself. And I think that's something that I want to be quite careful of. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm even a little bit worried about my line of questioning here that it keeps coming back to the scores <laughs> <laughs> because it's obviously very interesting, the scores, but it's obviously mm -hmm. very difficult to talk about sound in a, in a you know, concrete uh, yeah. uh, way. So we will be getting two sounds. Uh, eventually, um, the fixed media in your uh, work—it um, seems to uh, be a part of a lot of your pieces. Um, and as uh, you were just discussing, it's often recording recordings of previous performances of the piece that we're actually listening to at the moment. So, how does fixed media come about? How do you work with it? You know, on a technical level, what programs do you use, blah blah blah. But also, what is its role? Is it, is it in a way another score for the performers? Excuse me. I think that's a nice way to think about it. Yeah, that it has a kind of notational um, function. Um, sometimes it has a kind of durational function. So if I know that I've got to do something and it's got to be fifteen minutes, then it can be a good way to kind of think about structuring that time. Um, and um and you know you don't have to use all of it necessarily so we've done performances where Alistair is selected from it in in the performance um and well often um you know improvisation can be the starting point for how I start to think about the piece so it could be recordings of, of me playing um the organ or other instruments or you know anything um and also text and speech as well is a part of that. And so uh, how do I work with it? Well, I'm interested in um, often working with what I would describe as uh, like anti-aesthetic processes in the studio. So I'm not looking for sound. Instead, I'm looking at um, enacting certain processes without um influencing what the sonic result of those is so for example um where you might have certain notational practices finding a way that that can be um, replicated in a way in studio um and so that has you know therefore you may end up um deleting things that you really liked uh or you may end up um amplifying things that you weren't so sure about or you may end up creating something that was completely unexpected and that that's quite challenging because it well I find it's quite challenging because I'm asking myself to then accept the outcome of those processes 
um, and then maybe kind of use that to rework that. So often I might have um, many, many sessions that eventually become one piece uh, where perhaps all of those sessions will give me different kind of textural layers. You know, and I'm also interested in things that have these lots of different layers that are working at kind of different sort of geological speeds. Um, so um, sometimes that's uh, to give a really basic example, like having many, many copies of the same thing. So let's say you've got kind of some sort of organ improvisation, many copies of it. All of those copies you can differently filter. And then you can differently, uh, you know, trigger or um, decide where they're playing. So instead of hearing one version of that, what you hear is kind of a filtering in and out of all different parts of that sound, which um, it works very well with the organ because the organ is so rich and it, has, you know, it has so much sound in it. And um, what you find when you've recorded the organ is that there's a lot of sound there that you can't hear unless you actually specifically try to get that separate from from the rest of it. So a lot of it's just the, the, an exploration of, you know, all the different parts of sound that you have. And um, and I'm interested in how recordings have those kind of layers within them that you're not necessarily focusing on or attending to when you listen to it straight away. Um, and so, yeah, so it's a way of kind of capturing and reworking and, and thinking about different types of sound, but also, yeah, different performances that have happened and, and perhaps not losing those, but also not kind of um, just freezing them, by having a kind of recording of it and saying, well, this was that concert and there it is, and it's kind of stuck in time. <laughs> now, this term anti-aesthetic, I was going to bring this up um, later uh, on, on your web page. I've never heard this term before. Uh, so it's this process of... Um, should we, could we say unintentional results or, or setting up a, a pathway? Yeah, I think where, where people tend to use anti-aesthetic, it's, it's a criticism of how the idea of aesthetics is actually something that has become perhaps institutionalised and normalised. So um, that the expectations of music aesthetics might, for example, prevent certain types of sound, certain ways of doing, certain ways of thinking, uh, because they're just outside. And so um, to be, to be an, an anti-aesthetic process is one that kind of denies what a kind of institutionalised aesthetics of music says is important. Um, and so, you know, working in the studio without listening is absolutely not what you, you learn to do or, you, you know, you would be allowed to do. Um, you know, and it's certainly not what I would be recommending students should do, but actually... Um, you know, and then at some point, obviously, you do have to listen to it and engage with it. But then, um, yeah, so it's, it's a way of saying, how can I get beyond what seems to be acceptable, valuable, beautiful? Um, it's very fascinating. It's uh, reminiscent of uh, oh, Salvador Dali, I think, did some experiments yes. of painting in the dark. Yes. Um, uh, so forth. Uh, and on a nitty gritty basis, this um, processing of this audio that you do without listening, <clears throat> this anti-aesthetic, is that <clears throat> are the processes just um, done, shall we say, willy-nilly, or is there an actual random <laughs> random process 
by how you go about things, or is it very structured uh, approach before you listen to it? I have a couple of procedures that I uh, often use. And um, yeah, so often they're to do with things like uh, structure or um, filtering or um, certain uh, ways of cutting things up and things like that. So in a way, I think it's comparable to, um, to Ulipo and the way that Ulipo works with text. I'm not familiar, sorry. So, um, Ulipo is, um, in, in French, it's a library of potential literature. And uh, a group of artists who um, experimented with different ways of making poetry and like concrete poetry and sound poetry by using existing text as a source. Um, and so, yeah, that, similarly, that's, you know, it's anti-aesthetic because it's, it's you know, it's using something... Um, and then you get what you get, and then that's where you, you start. Um, so in a way, it's kind of a, a, a studio ulipo. Um, but also sometimes when I've created these scores and, and these notations, then I'm thinking about how can I do something that is comparable to the notation within the session? And, and what does that get me? And, uh, There's one more project I'd like to talk about, uh, but before we get to the Anglo-Saxon project, which, as you say, will have a different name probably in the uh, future. Mm. Um, where does sound fit into all of this? Or where does sound fit into your um, composition process or your, your making? I know a lot of composers who often say sound comes first, even though mm. often from their music you can tell that that's just a cool thing to say, some sort of lip service. Other composers would say that I've had this discussion with some other composers that that's impossible. The aesthetic would have to come first, kind of this filter idea. For you, where is sound? Yeah, you're right to say. I mean, it's absolutely with these pieces I haven't started with. It must sound like this, and then how does how does that get achieved? Um, but also, I don't think it's conceptual in the way that you would say, you know, Arthur Moussier is conceptual, for example. Um, so, I mean, there are certainly there are things that I like the sound of. And um, so I'm maybe on a really basic level, I'm creating opportunities for me to make those sounds and other people to make sounds like them. Um, and you can see, I mean, the first, the Antoptic landscape piece starting with the tubers and the trombone and the organ, and then uh, in the ERA piece working with the double bassist and the saxophone and the tuba again. So I like low notes, and I'm definitely <laughs> making doesn't? opportunities for low notes to happen all the time. Um, and also, I think, you know, working with those people that, you know, it's one thing to say, yeah, you can trust these people, you know that their their musicality and their, you know, ideas and their creativity is the right thing for the project. But also they're people who, when I hear them improvise and when I hear them play, I really like the sound of what they do. So I think it has a kind of human level there where it's it's maybe about the sounds that these people can make as opposed to a specific sound. Um, and then I think 
I'm interested in the, the kind of tactile nature of things. So that has to do with the kind of handmade, handwritten notation. And it also has to do with the kind of, you know, the action and the physicalness of performing. And um, so I think sound is part of that, but it's I'm not interested in, you know, performance as a way to get sound. I'm interested in a performance as a, you know, a physical thing that, that is to do with sound, but is, is much more than that. It's kind of embodied and, and tactile as well. So I think that sound, sound is a part of music, but it's not, it's not the only part of music. And that's, um, you know, it's a problem in aesthetics because um, particularly a lot of, you know, transcendental aesthetics, you know, it talks about the performer as like the vessel for the music, you know, and, and if, attention is drawn to the body of the performer or the person of the performer then the music is ruined because it's all about you know imagining that nobody's there and this thing is just happening and I'm actually you know I'm, I'm after the complete opposite of that that there are people there and that they are performing and that we know that they're you know individuals and it's to do with with them um so so sound is really important and I really enjoy sound but I think the kind of abstract enjoyment of sound is is quite remote from how I think music is and what I want music to be. Huh. Very fascinating. Very interesting approach. It it kind of brings to mind some of Lachman's early ideas that the sound is the by byproduct, if you will, of the mm-hmm. physical action being uh, asked for. Um, which I think he backed away from fairly quickly, but it's still a very interesting process that comes, a very interesting idea that comes in many different forms with many different composers, mm-hmm. this, this physicality. Yeah. But this ancient idea, or the older idea of the ghost, the performer as a ghost that we don't actually acknowledge being there, uh, it's also quite an interesting era that we had. Now, the last project I wanted to talk to you about is uh, quite a few pieces that I cannot pronounce um and these are what you've called at the moment the anglo-saxon project Mm. could you um tell us about this project and again it's a reaching back uh to the very distant past uh we briefly mentioned the scores the scores are uh, eye-catching uh quite beautiful Mm. scores and are very reminiscent of um, some of the ars nova or the uh, other renaissance even Mm. medieval chants uh, scores. Perhaps you could fill us in about this project and some of the pieces. Yeah, so I mean, they're using, they're all using Anglo-Saxon sources and of course, you know, when you say Anglo-Saxon, it's not actually one thing, it's, you know, hundreds of years of culture and um, so even, you know, when you're talking about Anglo-Saxon language, there's no agreed pronunciation and, and also that's because that was something that developed, so it's the same thing about, you know, talking about English in the 15th century in English today, it's the same language, but obviously it's developed and changed. Um, so I'm interested in the language. I'm interested in um, the the kind of uh, literature and the arts that comes from that period and um, interesting to me about it. I think it is the pastness. It's the, but also it, um, I'm interested in, it, it's kind of a lost culture in that, you know, it's lots of it's dead. The language is in many ways obsolete. Um, 
and also that there's, there's these kind of assumptions about this culture that it it just has a, a tradition that now we're at the other end of that oh and we're not you know much of this was kind of cut off and and and, uh, and finished with so so i'm interested in exploring those things and also the within the kind of well two things within within the artistic practices there are a lot of decorative practices you know so again that that is to do with the aesthetic nature of some of those things but it's also to do with creating things that are ostensibly not part of the work but then they also are and so i'm interested in what does it mean to kind of to remake these to perform them to consider them as notation rather than decoration for example so um the piece Gloom Maiden looks like an illuminated manuscript uh, and in um the the piece that's called ingenga that has it's a triptych it's like an altarpiece um but it also uses so one of the panels of it takes the structure of a page of the book of kells um so it's kind of makes some references that way um and then also within anglo-saxon culture there there aren't really words for music and uh so you can be um like a scop or like a, a poet or um but there are lots of words for sound there are lots of words for things that are harmonious or disharmonious um and so a lot of um current studies of the period think about how perhaps maybe music is part of a performance like you might think in in uh, ancient greece for example that you're 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 a poet but you're also able to sing or perform um but those things are not separable and also there's um you know current scholarship that's looking at how this isn't actually a bardic uh tradition it's something that's different and and therefore what's different about it and maybe mistakes have been made by just thinking about it as bardic and it must be the same as kind of ireland and, and perhaps it's not so i'm interested in well what do you do then if you're not a musician because there's no word for musician then then what are you and, and what do you what do you do and what do you get to do and so in a way i'm kind of um just trying to think about what what does that mean and so how can i kind of recreate that for myself through these sources and through these kind of practices um and so making these different pieces so if we look <clears throat> at one of your pieces um seo need okay and does that have a meaning <laughs> it does i translated it as uh, a woman who has been violated a traveler the time of whose journey has come uh, that's quite poetic and so it kind of means you know ready to go traveler who's ready to go and very interestingly on the front title page uh, you call it a score catalog which is yeah. uh, quite an interesting uh, approach now it's a very open-ended um, piece you have a fixed duration piece with fixed media of 10 minutes open-ended duration and um, some of the various, I hesitate to call them movements, but I'll use that word for lack of a different word, can be performed in different um, guises. And the score goes back and forth between traditionally notated music with uh, time frames on it, yeah. just for the listener. And then, as you say, these very ornamental, um, like the old illuminated, uh, manuscript. So how, 
how is the performer meant to, or how has the performer, oh, and at the same time there are quotes from your own uh, writing or quotes from other texts. I'm, I'm not sure where these quotes are from, for instance, um, For God, By God's Help, By Mead, Her Mother Wept. Yep. So this is the the this is the first piece where I wanted to make um, sort of text the starting point, and so I used these uh, translations of Anglo-Saxon poetry uh, by Gavin Bone that were done in the forties and fifties, and, and and these are kind of the kind of translations that people would not do today because they tried to kind of modernize it. Um, they were aiming for kind of rhyming rather than alliteration. And um, so so some of them stray quite far, really, from what was in the original text. So even that um, practice is now obsolete. Uh... Exactly, yeah, exactly, because you would be aiming for something that kind of tried to illuminate something more about the poetic practice, probably. Um, so I did. I used some of these Ulipo procedures to select uh, phrases from... Um, group of four poems and then to to work on that text and so I eventually produced a kind of epic poem for myself out of these sources and I use that as a starting point so um, I did a couple of things I created um, 15 uh, like samples which have come from the poetry but also using these again anti-aesthetic practices in the studio and then I quit basically my epic poem it kind of told the story of um, a woman who has uh, witnessed kind of atrocity and had to flee and is thinking about how can she return to where she's from. So there's a sort of contemporary uh, relevance to that to me as well. Um, and so, so then I had these fragments and then I was thinking about how to create the score. And so I called it a catalogue because I was thinking of it really as the kind of... Um, the source materials of this journey. So um, there's sort of fragments of music which could have been heard, which uh, appear in some of them. And um, so I purposefully wrote them in a way that some of it gets cut off, you know, as if part of the manuscript is lost. Um, there's some references to specific manuscripts. So some of the pictures of the fish and the boat and those things, they are from, uh, original manuscripts uh, there's maps and then uh, there's also some images and notation that relates to uh, navigation and um, and then the, the quotes that are in the score come from from that as well so I guess you have the, the audio which is in a sense notational as you, you pointed out before um, and then I mean hopefully I, I feel like there's again these layers where you know you could play the notes and then if you wanted to kind of work out what to do on some of the pages that don't have notes, well, you could use those notes again, maybe if you didn't know what to do. Um, or you could be maybe more extended than that. And even where there's there's notation, I feel like, you know, you could look at that and say, well, this is notation, but it's also kind of cut off and mangled in a way. So maybe I'm not going to play it as it's written, but I'm going to do something else with that. So hopefully it's open for a different kind of approaches and certainly um this is the piece that Mari Fukumoto played so she um and she played it with like a, a portative organ so it's quite limited in in what the organ can actually do 
And so she did do something that was quite gestural to do the keyboard. And then um, Alistair and I performed it. He played the violin and I uh, used uh, voice and electronic processing. And uh, we probably did something that was a bit more extended. Um, that's, you know, come as well from our kind of history of working together. And you performed it at the same time uh, with uh, the organist or as a separate? No, no, as a separate in a separate performance, yeah. Well, that was just um, last weekend. <laughs> okay. um, oh, yeah, I, I did get the recording. No, I didn't get the recording of that one, I don't think. Did I? Oh, oh maybe I forgot it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, just describe some of these scores. There's one that's really eye-catching to me with this sort of constellation, or star constellation, which not knowing that this piece was about travel or a traveler writing to go makes a lot more sense now that you know, they would have used the stars in the past, which is an obsolete mm -hmm. form of the navigation. Uh, and it is cut off, some of these <coughs> constellations, and, but they're very interestingly connected to more traditional notation. So it's, it's really quite an engaging visual thing, but I think it would very much have a certain sound to it, or I would interpret it as a performer, very much as an extended um, sound element. And the quote here is very uh, powerful. A sword whose destiny is mighty. <laughs> so these projects, these Anglo-Saxon projects, are coming to an end. Is that correct? or? Yes. So I've written four pieces. And um, I'm, I'm working at the moment. I've got um, an intern who's called Josh Cannon, who's brilliant. And he's been working in the studio to kind of uh, master some of these performances and also um, to help in kind of editing, selecting between them, doing some more creative things. And so we're going to make a fifth piece, which is yet to be decided. So that's going to be a studio piece. Um, it's going to use materials from um, the previous works. One of the things that Josh has done is to create uh, resampled electronic instruments using uh, sounds that he liked in the, in the previous performances. So we'll probably use those instruments um, and some other samples. And so then when we've got those five pieces, um, there's going to be an album that will be released in October, I hope. And uh, by that point, I will have thought of a title for the project that's not just Anglo-Saxon, but that's, that's also a work in progress. So I feel like I'm at a point where I've I think I've done most of the things that I want to do with these materials in terms of like notational, compositional uh, approach. And then, I don't know, I, I started in the Ice Age and then the Bronze Age and now, you know, kind of up to about the, the 12th century. So <laughs> I, I may arrive in the present at some point, but not quite there yet. Rococo art is on its way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, what What is next? Uh, do you have a, a, a project... Um your eye on starting next year or anything or I'm so I've just I've started not really a project but I um I wanted to write miniatures um because they're short and you can don't take too long and also I thought that would be an, an interesting way just to try out a few different things so I've written one for and I'd already written one for piano and I'd written one for toy piano in the past. 
So I've written one that's for um, any transverse flute. I've just written one for uh, viola de gamba and um, tenor recorder that can be performed as a duet or two separate pieces. And then finishing one for mezzo soprano. And then I'm doing a larger an art song for soprano and piano that um, is about the octopus. And the text is from Victor Hugo. And he, he says in one, it's from um, the, uh, the, the workers of the sea. And he says wonderful things like, um, it, the octopus is glue filled with hatred. It's wonderful. Um, so, so I've kind of, I've got this uh, octopus song. And then, I don't know, um, I think I'm gonna, yeah. I need to kind of work out the end of this Anglo-Saxon project and then think about where I'll go after that. Those ideas of miniatures is quite nice. I've been thinking about miniatures as well. I haven't started any, but I think it would be nice to just do, you know, maybe even sort of anti-aesthetic type things of, you know, one page is the limit or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. And also people keep saying to me, have you got a piece for this? And um, all my, I've, I've never done any projects that are sort of just a string quartet or something, so I always have to say no. So I thought it might be a good way to actually, you know, create some pieces for more regular instrumentation. Well, excellent, um, Lauren. Um, anything has has anything come up that you'd like to explore more, or anything that I haven't touched on? No, I mean I feel like this has been very um, in depth and interesting. So. Oh, good. I hope I hope it was. I think it was. I think it was very enjoyable. Um, it's really helpful to talk to someone about your work, actually, because it just helps you to think about it in different ways that you've not. Absolutely. Yeah. No. It's. It's. Uh, I think it's going to be a fun project. I've had fun here with you today. Uh, we will be talking again um, about your life as a performer, but also uh, your life as an academic. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, trends in the UK that you've seen. We started off this conversation that uh, when you were a bit younger, um, the UK tends to be, as the US is, quite conservative, but um, I've been really impressed by the composers coming out of the UK and how non-conservative they are. Um, so I think there might be a bit of a shift uh, afoot, or maybe I'm just looking at a very small <laughs> sample size. Oh. I think there's, there's some excellent composers. Um, I think the kind of bigger institutions of the UK are the more conservative um, end of it, absolutely. Great. Well, uh, thanks so much, uh, Lauren, for joining us, and we'll talk to you uh, very soon. Thank you.